So, I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like getting to hear audiobook chapters of my previous two novels with behind-the-scenes commentary on every chapter. I recently finished recording every single chapter for both Junkyard Leopard and my second novel of Dice and Men. Check it out. There'll be more bonus episodes of more nebulous nature as time progresses. If you're not a patron already, you can check out all other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. A funny fact about New Edge Sword and Sorcery issue zero, that magazine I edited and which recently came out, is that author TK Rex wrote her story while attending the Clarion Writers Workshop. One of her teachers, Christopher Rao, by sheer coincidence, happened to recently join the Whetstone Tavern Discord where I so often hang out and talk to other people who love sword and sorcery. We'd gotten to know each other a little bit, and I thought, hey man, why don't you come on the podcast and teach me and anyone listening a little bit more about what it's like to be in a writer's workshop and what it's like to teach one. Christopher Rao, by the way, has been a finalist for the Hugo Nebula World Fantasy Newcon Institute and Theodore Sturgeon Awards. His stories have been frequently reprinted, translated into a half dozen languages around the world, and praised by the New York Times Book Review. He is a graduate of the Bluegrass Writers Studio serves as a founding board member of the Lexington Writers' Room, and holds elected office as supervisor on the Fayette County Soil and Water Conservation Board. Hey, why not? But hey, why don't we let the man speak for himself and go to the interview? Chris. Hi, Chris. Hello, Oliver, and I'm going to immediately disabuse you and your listeners of the notion that I go by Chris, because I actually go by Christopher. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, it's no, so, no uh, need to apologize. No, no, but I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not offended if people call me Ollie, but it's not like something I go by or encourage. Right. So, you know, uh, a competent interviewer would have checked on this beforehand, but you've got me. <laughs> <All right. laughs> okay, so yeah, let's, uh, let's get on in here. Uh, writing workshops. What's that all about? Specifically, Let's start in the shallow end of the pool. You know, let's just ease in here. What exactly, like I have a lot of notions and I'm sure other people do too, but what exactly is involved in a standard, if if you can say there is one, American writing workshop akin to the Clarion where you recently taught? I recently taught at Clarion. I attended Clarion West in 1996. Uh, These are, those two are the most famous and the most intensive of of a number of, of workshops um, some of which are uh, instructor student driven, like the two clarions, some which are some of which are peer reviewed, like Sycamore Hill, which I've attended 15 times. Um, and basically they work like this, whether there's an instructor present or not. Uh, a piece is presented by a writer. And then the tradition in American science fiction workshops is to follow something called the Milford model which was developed by Damon Knight and Kate Wilhelm when they ran um, workshops out of their home in Milford, Pennsylvania, starting in the early 1960s. Uh, 
the Milford workshops continued into the 70s and were attended by a young John Kessel, the Nebula winner, John Kessel, who went on with others to found Sycamore Hill. I'll get back to Sycamore Hill in a moment and talk first about the Clarions. Um, Knight and Wilhelm actually were involved with the founding of the Clarion Workshop as well. And later on, Clarion West started in Seattle and Vonda McIntyre was instrumental in its founding. They worked the same way as the, as the uh, Sycamore Hill and Milford did in terms of the model. And the model is this. A number of writers, usually 12 or so at a professional writer's workshop and up to 18 at a student instructor workshop, sit in a circle around a table. They have previously read the piece under review, usually twice, and marked it up and sometimes written a letter. And starting usually at the writer who is under review, starting at their left, you work your way around the table and each person speaks about the piece in turn. The writer does not speak. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about how this is changing. Um, the writer does not speak. And then in turn, each writer speaks as in, as they go around the circle. Uh, at Sycamore Hill, you can speak up to 10 minutes. At the Clarions, it's as few as two. Um, and once that is done the author has an opportunity to speak for as long as they want to usually. And then there's crosstalk and it opens up into a general conversation. The clarions are, um, are formal pay to go workshops. Um, they cost thousands of dollars. They last six weeks. It's an enormous commitment of time and money for anyone who does them. And, uh, the professional workshops like Sycamore Hill and Rio Hondo and a couple of others, tend to only last about a week and you basically just pay for room and board. For something like the Clarion, or I guess any of them really, is there, um, sorry if I can ask a quick follow-up question, is there much in the way of any kind of grant system? You know, I, I get called out for being a Canadian when I ask about that kind of thing, but, uh, you know, some, something to help the class divide aspect of who can attend. Yes, both Clarions have um, fairly robust scholarship programs the the largest of which is the Octavia Butler Scholarship, which I believe is given at both of them and is aimed at writers of color. But uh, <clears throat> there's money now available for people traveling from overseas. There's money available on, you know, based on financial hardship. Uh, there's money available based on underrepresented communities. Um, it's not always great. It might only, it might be as little as 25 or 50% of the tuition and no uh, tuition slash Roman board and no travel money, but you know, um, both of them are run by private foundations that are constantly struggling for money and are constantly raising money. And, um, the private ones are like Sycamore Hill. The one I'm most familiar with takes place, takes place at a retreat center in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And basically the organizer, Richard Butner, adds up what the cost will be for 12 people to stay there for a week and divides it by 12 and we all pitch in and it tends to be, you know, less than $500, less than $400 actually. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, I must admit, I was thinking for certainly something like a six-week commitment, even if, um, say, a scholarship covered 100% of that cost, I imagine it's difficult for someone to have a job that would let them bugger off for six weeks. Yes, uh, and it come absolutely back and is. Still it's have in it. a... 
it's a people who attend Clarion are in positions of enormous privilege, even the ones that are having even the ones who it's a financial hardship to, to attend. I mean, when I taught at Clarion this past summer, there was a man there who had a who had a six week year old child, six week, I believe six week year old child, six week year, six week old child um, who came immediately, you know, almost immediately after the birth of his daughter. There was a man who came immediately from volunteering in the Ukraine for six months, uh, six mm -hmm. weeks. And, you know, you have to either be in a position where you can literally quit your job and go and then get another job when you get back or be a freelancer. There were a couple of people there that were working as freelancers while they were at um, the workshop, you know, and that's easier now than, you know, it used to be with so much work from home going on now. But mm -hmm. when I attended back in the 90s, the expectation was that you were there to do this and nothing else. Now, I was lucky enough to receive some money from it. I was also lucky enough to be my day job at that time was working for my then in-laws who were very supportive and were happy to let me pause my pause my work life there for that long. But everybody has to be, I mean, I guess luck does factor into it unless you're independently wealthy. And I suppose some people who are independently wealthy go to Clarion. I don't know any of them. Right. Sorry to zero in. I'm not trying to have a jab, but I just, uh, it's hard for me to separate um, economy from culture, I suppose, uh, in my own life. <laughs> and so I do tend to think pretty hard about this stuff. Um, to come on to the next question here, uh, now I was going to ask what, if any, but obviously you have attended uh, writing workshops. So I was going to say, uh, maybe let's refine this a bit and say, well, okay, you've attended quite a few writing workshops. How did you find your experiences per perhaps comparing your first to your latest kind of thing? Workshops have been tremendously important in my career um, and my and my growth as an artist. I had written almost nothing when I attended Clarion West in 1996. I'd written one story, actually. And I had to write a second one for the application process. And um, I was lucky enough to enjoy early publishing success after that workshop. Uh, I don't want to... I hate this word... Uh, there's this word networking, but the fact that you meet and interact with and work with working professional writers and editors, as long as you're not a jerk to them, they will help you out, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what happened to me. One of my instructors was Ellen Datlow. She's been one of the editors that I've most consistently worked with over the last 25 years. Um, another was my friend and mentor, Terry Bisson another Kentucky writer who has kind of shaped me as an artist or at least early in my career. And going forward, when I began going to the Sycamore Hills in the early 2000s up through as recently as this year, um, you know, the fact of the matter is if you're not a particularly productive or fast writer to attend Sycamore Hill, you have to turn in a story. You, you know, you have to write a story in order to go to Sycamore Hill. So <laughs> I have to write at least one story a year. Another person that is in that boat is um, other people that tend to do that are Ted Chang and Karen Joy Fowler, who are frequent attendees and whose short fiction output tends to be related to the years they go to Sycamore Hill and the years they don't. Um, you know, at the Clarions, you're expected to write at least four or five stories. Now, the, the expectation is the kind of default expectation is that you write six. You turn in a story every week. That is impossible for some people, and it is fine that it's impossible for some people. Now, to back up a little bit, 
I want to talk about the Milford model again. Okay. Mm. It has over the years grown more controversial and less useful. All right. There's a book, mm. uh, and I'm blanking on the author. Um, it's called Workshopping in the Real World. And I have it right in front of me. Craft in the Real World, Rethinking yeah, Fiction correct. Writing and Workshopping by Matthew Saleses. Right. And that, this whole yeah. idea of decolonizing the workshop is very important, and it's very exciting. When we taught Clarion this past year, actually, we didn't use the Milford model. We used an interview model developed by someone, but taught to us by uh, your fellow Canadian, Nalo Hopkinson, who um, it involves the quote, instructors, end quote, interviewing the writer about their piece and about their work method and that sort of thing, which tends to put the, to, to put the students on a more equal footing with the instructor and, you know, frankly, gives them practice at, um, at what may come up in later in their careers, which they may be interviewed, like I'm being interviewed right now, about practice and so on. Um, mm. And I should mention, by the way, that... Um, one of my students, uh, Taya Fisher, is that her last name? TK? Um, well, she goes by TK Rex. Uh, right, TK Rex. By, right, TK Rex. And she has a story, of course, in New Edge Horton Sorcery, the yeah. issue zero, and which she, I believe she wrote at Clarion, actually. Yes, yes, she told me. Uh, when I, I actually emailed her. I'm gonna, I was going to have a bit of fun and ambush you with this, but whatever. I've got two questions that were basically provided by Taya <laughs> uh, that we'll get to eventually. And she, Yeah, yeah. So this idea of decolonizing and um, making workshop models more open is is what's going on right now. Now, some of the older, more traditional peer review workshops, like Sycamore Hill, which has been around for 30 years or whatever, like Rio Hondo, which is run by um, Walter John Williams and has a slightly different angle, they are probably going to stick with Milford because it's a bunch of very experienced old hands usually who are running those workshops who are very committed to the model. And I believe it's a good model. Um, I believe that it basically requires everyone to speak and to offer thoughts. And now sometimes when you've got 12 people in a circle and you wind up going last, sometimes it's difficult to, you might not have anything new to say, but you can at least react to what other people have said, right? You can agree and disagree, and you can uh, extrapolate and interpolate. You can you can seek or add nuance to something that someone else has said. I also have an MFA in creative writing from the Bluegrass Writers Workshop at Eastern Kentucky University, and they actually didn't use that model except for one class that was taught by the science fiction writer Maureen McHugh, who was used to using Milford at mm. Sycamore Hill and at the Clarion she has taught at. So there are a wide variety of ways of doing it. But you asked about the tradition of American writers' workshops. I, because it is my experience, dove directly into science fiction and fantasy workshops. And that is that remains the model. Uh, it is a changing model at the Clarions and um, at the other workshops like Odyssey and uh, Viable Virtual Paradise. Viable Paradise? I don't know. Uh, there are a bunch of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, how did you find your way to teaching at the Clarion Workshop? And uh, was it your first time doing so? I guess it wasn't. Sorry, you've mentioned that earlier. Pardon me. No, it was, before, it was my first time teaching there. It was my first time teaching there. Oh, it was? Okay. Clarion has a tradition that some people argue for and some people argue against of having the first four weeks taught by single instructors 
And in the last two weeks, taught by an anchor team of two instructors who work together in various and different ways. And so I am lucky enough that my wife, Gwenda Bond, a novelist, a New York Times bestselling novelist, uh, has experience teaching as well. And so they're always looking for people who would make good pairings. And we are a married couple with teaching experience. So <laughs> they asked us to do it a couple of, they asked us to do it three years ago, actually. Hmm. But then uh, COVID happened yep. and the workshop didn't happen for a year or two, but they kept to the same instructor lineup. And then the week before we were going out for week five, we were doing week five and week six, we got COVID. Mm. So we were unable to do week five. Luckily, our friend Ted was in town. Ted Chang was already in town, so he was able to substitute for us. And then we got better and we went and did week six. But we did go back and read all the week five stories. And I read a bunch more. I read a, I read a great deal of the student work to be prepared for the interviews and for the critiquing process. Okay. Uh, now, early in my learning to write, I had a negative experience where it became quite clear the teacher of a class I attended wasn't trying to teach us how to write. He was trying to teach us how to write just like him, mm -hmm. that anything you know different was incorrect. I'm, I'm curious how, when teaching, uh, you guard yourself against slipping out of providing students with tools for use in expressing themselves how they wish to and falling into, you know, the I think how I write is good, thus it's how people should write fallacy. How do you protect yourself against that? I have three responses to that. <laughs> First off, writing pedagogy is very difficult. Writing is a intensely personal thing, right? Mm -hmm. The way you write, actually the way you write from listening to your podcast is foreign to me. <laughs> you know, the the <laughs> outlining and the intense thinking about scene by scene things. I, I don't do that at all. I'm a, I, I do not like the terms outliner pantser, but if, if I was, <laughs> for that. if I were going to use one, I would be a pantser, I guess. Yeah. So establishing first that it is very difficult to teach writing, although I do believe it is possible. The second thing I say is uh, I spend more time teaching or mentoring about what the work is going to do once it gets out in the world, um, because I, my default assumption is that writers want their work to go out into the world. And so I will contextualize what they're doing with what I know about what is being published and what is being read. Hmm. So most students appreciate that because that is not something that happens a lot in the classroom. Thirdly, I do not tend to engage with the students that directly. I engage with the stories, okay? Hmm. I engage with the work because the work is what I can work with. You know, I can't get in your head and tinker with your psychology, but I can get into your plot and tinker with sequence, right? And the most important thing that any writing teacher can do, I believe, is to receive the work with an open heart and work with it as the work is intended to be read. Mm -hmm. Not the way you want it to be read, not the way you want it to be written, but the way that the story is designed to be received is the way you should receive it and work with it. And now I'm going to add in a fourth thing. This is something I always tell my students, whether I'm teaching uh, uh, composition at community college, whether I'm mentoring one-on-one -on -one or whatever, and that is this. Throughout our relationship as a writing instructor and as a writing student, or as a mentor and a mentoree, a mentee, or as whatever our relationship is, something's going to happen. And that is this. I'm going to say something that I believe to be absolutely right and absolutely true. And it is going to be absolutely wrong and absolutely false for you. Okay. Now here's the difficult part. You're not going to know what it is at first. And here's the more difficult part. 
It's not going to be what you want it to be. Okay. I'm going to tell you something that is right for you that you feel resistant to. And I'm going to tell you something that you're resistant to, but you should still do, you know, you know, it's got to be a collaborative process. All, all pedagogy has to be a collaborative process to be effective, I believe. And writing pedagogy is fraught with power dynamics, with class issues, with gender issues. You know, your, your listeners can't see me, but I am a middle-class, middle-aged white man. I'm a Southerner, which you probably can figure out. <laughs> and I, so I speak from, uh, I, I mentioned this earlier, I speak from a position of enormous privilege and I'm cishet, you know, I, I don't, I offer nothing of interest in terms of demographics. I am, <laughs> well, uh, I, mean, I wouldn't would put it that way, but you are perhaps falling uh, within our, what has until recently, and well, what am I saying? He still really kind of is seen as a default yeah. for uh, Western, you know, North American societies for sure. Yeah, yeah. What everything's crafted for, yeah. As I the only thing I've got going for me is Appalachian, and that's uh, that's edge. That's an edge case. I think it's interesting to know who a writing teacher is a fan of and why. Clearly, you're widely read and could likely list quite a few favorites. So let's narrow this down a bit. I've been told by. Taya, <laughs> you're a big fan of Cordwainer Smith. I am. Who in some ways writes, as uh, she put it to me, the exact opposite of sword and sorcery, the genre I've been seeing you go you know, very deep on mm -hmm. uh, over in discussions in the Whetstone Tavern Discord. How did you discover Smith and why is he a favorite? I discovered Smith just earlier this year when in one review of my most recent book and then in conversation with a friend about my recent book, two different people mentioned Cordwainer Smith in the, within the context of my work. And I had never hmm. read a word <laughs> of Cordwainer. So I bought from uh, New England Science Fiction Association Press, Nespa Press, their enormous single volume collection of all his work. Cause he only wrote about 30 short stories in one sort of novel. And it's, just blew me away. I mean, his imagination and his, the concepts he works with and the way he uses futurism, far, far futurism, and the way he uses characterization in service of ideation, just, it was unlike anything I've ever read anywhere else. And I even underwent a project of, I actually own all of his first appearances from a magazine in 1950 called Fantasy mm. up through the, and I have first editions of every book that ever came out in the States. I've got dozens of magazines from the 60s that his original appearances were in. And I've read him, I've read him three different ways. I've read him um, in that Nesra Press book, which editorially uh, is strong, but it attend, he has a series, The Instrumentality of Mankind, and that most of his stories fall within. And that editor attempted to place the stories in an internal chronological sequence. Now, we can talk about this later when we talk about sword and sorcery. I find that an intensely problematic editorial practice hmm. for reasons that we can get into later. So then I went back and attempted to reread them look, you know, using the, the apparatus information in the book. But then once I started buying all these magazines, I discovered significant editorial changes in many of the later collections and anthologies that he appeared in. So now what I'm, I'm undertaking a project of reading, of reading all of his stories in the order they were published in the original places they were published. Because I want to experience the stories the way a reader would have experienced them in the 1950s and 1960s, hmm. as much as I can remove myself from 
you know, being a contemporary person. Yeah. Because I think it's important to, and now I'll move right into sword and sorcery. I think it's important to experience and be fair to writers by reading them as they take their artistic journey. Now, moving directly into sword and sorcery, the second wave of sword and sorcery, as you well know, was launched by what people call the Lancer paperbacks, the 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 Conan series of twelve Conan books hmm. that Elspray de Camp and others is that right? Lynn Lin Carter and he Lin yeah, Carter, were the duo yeah. worthy behind it. Yeah, right. Put out in which they attempted to use um, a document that a couple of fans wrote in the '30s called a probable outline of Conan's career yeah. to. First off, reorder the Conan stories as they appeared. And they were like, I mean, how many Conan stories appeared in Weird Tales? It can't be more than 12 or 15, right? Oh, something like that, yeah. Uh, put them in an internal or internal chronological order. And then their real sin was taking other Howard stories, rewriting them as Conan stories, taking fragments, expanding them into Conan stories, and then wholesale writing new Conan stories to make this long epic biography of Conan. Yeah, the very first story in all that series isn't even by Howard. It's something no. that Carter cobbled together uh, as a kind of, you know, Conan coming down out of the hills of Samaria, the little origin right. story. <laughs> right, right. And even as a youngster, I couldn't, I didn't know why some of them were so much better than others. I didn't know why some of them grabbed me so much more. I didn't know why some of them had so much more vitality and energy. I didn't know why some of them were sources of that raw wind of story that the best sword and sorcery emits, you know? And it was only years later when finally, I, this happened earlier than when I became aware of it, but the the Del Rey books, as they were published in um, in the United States, I think Wandering Star, is that right, published in the UK? And mm. they reset everything. They put the Conan stories in the order in which they were, actually the order in which they were composed, not just published, I believe. And then they published all these notes, letters, Correspondence between uh, the editor of Weird Tales and and Howard and all this like contextualizing material and uh, that same series has gone on to do that with Cole and Brand and um, Solomon Kane and a couple of other characters. Sword of Woman. Yeah. And I found that so useful and I found it so much more interesting than reading them in some kind of externally imposed internal chronological order. Well, like a, almost a fan fiction hybrid is certainly what happened yes. with the Lancers. Yes. However. There are the other two of the big three, Michael Marcock and French Labor, did that themselves. They themselves have imposed internal chronological order. I mean, Labor's, you know, long past, is, is, is long dead. But um, before he died, he put out those seven books, Swords of, Swords and, Swords Against, and he imposed an internal chronological order. And wrote Connective Tissue, right? I'm sorry? He wrote, he wrote short stories as Connective Tissue as well. Yes, uh, between yes, he uh, tales that come before, which Michael Moorcock has also always also done. Michael Moorcock, those first stories are sixty years old in the Elric saga. The newest one comes out in December of this year, right? Yeah. And he has spent decades tinkering, reordering, retitling, adding, subtracting from all of those different material, all those different stories. Now, in the two thousands, um, Del Rey put out an attempt at a definitive edition in six volumes that put them back in internal chronological order, mostly. And that is one of what I believe to be now, we're now on the fourth so-called definitive edition of Elric. Mm -hmm. That one contains the third or fourth time that Michael Moorcock said, this is it. You don't mm -hmm. know more. Now we've got these uh, from Saga Press. I love saying this, the Saga Saga, because uh, 
Saga Press is putting out the Elric Saga in three volumes, which again revisits and reorders to some extent um, all of the extant Moorcock Elric novels, short stories, and novellas. And to boil it all down, I like reading in the order of composition, or failing that, the order of publication a lot more than internal chronology. I think it makes more sense to readers because when you're reading Elric, for example, and you go from reading some crazy, energetic, absolutely action-packed short story written in 1963 for Science Fantasy Magazine, and then you jump straight to some, like, quite good philosophical, introspective character study that was published as a novel during the New Wave, you know, it's a it's a or disconcerting later, like the Pearl Fortress yeah. in '89. Oh right? yeah, right. Pearl yeah. Fortress comes second in uh, the current chronology, I think, after Elric yeah. of Mil- Milnivide, which is the origin story, which itself wasn't written until or published until the early '70s. Yep. <laughs> and there are, you know, there are other examples too of of um, sword and sorcery works that have that have been done this way. I'm not sure about the Kane stories of Carl Edward Wagner. I've only started reading them. Carl Edward Wagner did not get there, but I think if uh, the poor fellow had lived longer, it might have happened somewhere down the road. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was quite as obsessed with chronology, though, as other people. There's, I haven't read 100% of the Kane stories yet, but from talking to people who have, uh, I think there's only really even two stories that are directly um, placed side by side in chronology in a way that's clear to see. Otherwise, you're largely left to kind of infer things from context clues and so on. Let me rush to defend now. Let me rush to defend these editors and authors who do internal chronological order, which is that's what readers largely want, I believe. Yep. It's a fan thing. It's such a fan thing. We've been trained by our our entire lives up until the mid 90s or so by comic books to want there to be this so called COD internal consistency, internal chronology. Now it's important because. I mean, it's impossible because, you know, Superman is not exactly, not actually 105 years old in the comic books. And, you know, he did not, he hasn't actually, you know, in the, in the current incarnation of Batman, he has not actually fought the Joker 400 times, right? I mean, that's... Well, that's, yeah, I mean, this is how you get the big universal you know, reboots uh, every few years since 1986 right. with Crisis on Infinite Earth. But I, I fear yeah. we've steered... Uh, I, I could talk about this for 200 hours, but I fear we've steered a bit okay, off sorry. course. No worries. It's, it's part of the fun of doing this. But if I can sort of wrench the, the wheel back a little bit to Cordwainer Smith, and this is how we got there, right? You were talking about how you've All been right. reading him uh, in your preferred order. Yeah, so I mean, is, is he your favorite in a way because you see yourself in him when people said, oh, you know, this, this guy writes like you uh did you come to him and go yeah he does write like me i like that or or you know uh well, what was it you know in his craft that maybe you kind of found you vibed with and uh while ratchet is there anything in his writing uh, in his craft that you ended up recommending to students or anything like that let me set aside one thing about seeing myself in smith i see my work in smith's work smith himself i doubt that i would have spent 10 minutes in a room with him <laughs> he was a cold warrior he was Sun Yat-sen's godson. Godson. He wrote the standard work on psychological warfare. Huh. He, he uh, was a colonel in the U.S. Army, and he visited. He was sent by the State Department and by the War Department to visit what he called small little wars in Southeast Asia to uh, develop psychological warfare techniques and so on. He was not a man who I think I would have successfully had a friendship with, right? <laughs> but his work is wildly different from that. There is a theory, first events by Brian Aldous in his um, 
history of science fiction, billion year spree, later revives his trillion year spree. That, and I'm not entirely convinced of this, but there was a, a story, um, an article that came out, I believe in the Atlantic Monthly in the 1950s. I think it was called Starship on the Sofa. It was about, it was part of a book that uh, a psychologist wrote about some of his thinly disguised clients. And one of his clients was a science fiction writer who, according to this psychologist, believed he was experiencing visions from the future that he then wrote as his stories. Some people think that was Cordwainer Smith, because Cordwainer Smith was intensely interested in psychology and, and psychiatric analysis. And I think the connection is tenuous at best, but it is interesting to know that this cold warrior had this, I mean, wild imagination, an imagination that I don't think has been, I mean, it's certainly been equaled, but it's not been exceeded since he wrote his stories of the instrumentality of mankind, which include mm. things like uplifted cats uh, who act as Christ figures. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I've lost the thread of the question here, but the, well, um, I was, well let's bring it back to you because what I was, what I was really trying to get at was what made Cordwainer Smith a favorite. And I think we've covered that pretty well, but also, is there anything in his craft, his actual technique that you felt like, yeah, I do that. And that you yes. would recommend to students or maybe even have. Yes. I do not strive for, but I experience an events in my work, something I call dissonance. My list makes that hard to say. Uh, but the, what I mean by that word is that because I, in my own life, as a fairly intelligent and highly educated man, frequently have no idea what's going on around me. I can make no sense of the news. People are a mystery to me as far as why they say the things they say and do the things they do in the way that they do so. And because I am frequently bewildered as a human being, I sometimes too much put bewildering effects in my stories, right? Mm. Now, thank God I've got my wife and writing partner, Gwenda Bond, and I've got strong editors like Jonathan Strawn and Ellen Datlow to rein me in, you know, to make sure I'm still telling a story that is discernible and important in some sense of the word, um, and not simply an exercise in bewilderment, right? Yeah. Uh, within the context of science fiction and fantasy. And, and I'm actually calming down a lot about in that terms. I'm, I'm now more interested in achieving similar effects through action and through weirdness um, and through uh, strange magics and through weird science fictional explications of the intelligence of animals and stuff like that. And less so in these kind of like almost nightmarish, uh, at least dreamlike techniques of, of achieving that dissonance I was talking about. So, you know, I'm changing. I've been writing for 25 years and I've gone through several phases of being more and less coherent, I guess. <laughs> no, that's interesting. I think uh, you may enjoy, um, perhaps by the time listeners are hearing this, you will have already heard uh, the interview that's coming up next in my order of uh, publication with Scott Dorward, uh, all about, we've basically talked a lot about the weird with a capital W. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it makes you think of that. Uh, so, okay, uh, back to the tighter focus on the workshops. I did not know we were going to bring this up earlier in the interview, so, but I'll read the question as is uh, to kind of reiterate it for any listeners uh, who could benefit from that. Uh, so, yes, as I mentioned, this year I read an interesting book called Craft in the Real World by Matthew Salesis. It's basically a constructive critique of how American writing workshops have traditionally been run. I say constructive because it has a lot of interesting exercises and suggestions and so on. I found a lot of interesting stuff there just for my own writing, never mind uh, any workshops I may or may not attend uh, in the future. Here's a short quote from the preface. Matthew says, what we call craft is in fact nothing more or less 
than a set of expectations. Those expectations are shaped by workshop, by reading, by awards and gatekeepers, by biases about whose stories matter and how they should be told. How we engage with craft expectations is what we can control as writers. The more we know about the context of these expectations, the more consciously we can engage them. Those expectations are never neutral. They represent the values of the culturally dominant population. In America, that means, you know, straight, cis, able, upper middle class, usually white males. When craft is taught unreflexively within a limited understanding of the canon, it reinforces narrow ideas about whose sto uh, stories are important and what makes a story beautiful, moving, or good. And then, you know, here's the punchline where Salesus then argues, we need to rethink craft and the teaching of it to better serve writers with increasingly diverse backgrounds, which means diverse ways of telling stories. Like in revision, the fiction writer must break down what she thinks she knows about her craft in order to liberate it. Okay, maybe that quote wasn't so short. <laughs> and I feel like we actually did kind of tap dance on some of this earlier, but I am curious, you know, what do you think about this claim and what has been your approach to the issues raised by Salesus here? I believe 100% in that claim or set of claims. Now, I am limited because of the skill set I possess about what I can do to address these issues and also the work that I do. I don't teach a, I don't teach a workshop every year. Mm -hmm. But when I read that book and when I read that introductory sequence that you're just talking about, what struck out, what stuck out to me about what I can work on is bias and gatekeeping. Right. Those are the two words that really jumped out at me. I'm a biased reader. So are you. So is everyone mm -hmm. listening to this. And what you have to, what I struggle with and will struggle with for the rest of my working life is to recognize and revise and subvert those biases, right? Gatekeeping is a complicated thing because, because it means so many different things to so many different people. I don't think I myself have gatekept that much because I've not been in a process of choosing stories or choosing who gets to attend a workshop or that sort of thing. But I certainly have gone through many gates. Many gates have been held wide open for me. My publishing history is a, has been a series of gifts. It's, it's been a series of people offering me opportunities and asking me to do things, right? I've been an incredibly lucky person, but part of it's not luck. Part of it is the fact that I just know the people I know and the people who I know happen to have read my work and engaged with it. All right. I'm going to tell a story that is going to frustrate some people. <laughs> All right. I was on vacation in Jamaica with a bunch of writers and among them were Cassie Clare, who's a big deal YA writer, Holly Black, who's famous for a number of reasons, Kelly Link, who's a MacArthur genius, Karen Joy Fowler, Booker, short, short award finalist, my wife, Gwenda Bond, New York Times bestseller, all these different crazy people who are much fancier than me. I, at that point, only written short stories. And we were talking about, they were making fun of me about this, basically, because, <laughs> and Holly Black said, why, Ro, why haven't you written a novel? And I said, because, Holly Black, the novel is an ungainly and an elegant form. And she, you know, and that got the laugh it deserved. She said, no, seriously, what would it take for you to write a novel? And I said, well, it seems like an awful lot of work. I would want somebody to cut me a check before I actually wrote it. And she said, that's difficult to arrange when you've not written anything with short stories. And I said, you know, sorry, sorry, Holly Black. That's what it's going to take. And she said, what kind of novel have you always wanted to write? And I said, when I was a little kid, I thought the best novels in the world were Forgotten Realms novels for Dungeons and Dragons. And she said, okay. And that was it. I go home. 
Two weeks later, I get an email from Wizards of the Coast asking me if I want to write a Forgotten Realms novel. Oh, wow. Because Holly Black had called somebody that she knew there and said that I would do a good job at it. And they approached me. And I did. And I think it's a pretty good book. I My wife thinks I should have filed the serial numbers off of it and given them their check back because uh, it was at the end of Wizards... Wizard, you know, TSR published tremendous amounts of novels, and early days Wizards did too. But then after Hasbro bought them, and after a fourth edition of Dungeons and Dragons came out, basically it was just all uh, Ari Salvatore, and he's a great guy, and I'm I do not envy him, and I celebrate his success. But there was a lot more to the Forgotten Realms than those than those Dark Elf books, and and so I wrote towards the end of the Forgotten Realms novel line, and it kind of got lost. Basically, what I say is that Forgotten Realms fans weren't crazy about it, but general fantasy fans loved it. Hmm. So I don't think I did. I don't think I did quite the job I was contracted for, but I'm proud of the book. And then in my most recent books, the Tor.com novella line is just like going gangbusters, the murder bots especially, and it's revived the novella as a form. Mm-hmm. And I wrote two editors I'd worked with who acquired for Tor.com novellas, and I said, hey, how about if I write novellas? And they said yes, and they went to Tor.com, and Tor.com gave me a two-novella contract, sight unseen, based on paragraph pitches, right? And people ask me, it's like, you know, how do you, how do you, I mean, a writer of our acquaintance, uh, our mutual acquaintance asked me via email yesterday, how do you get in front of Tor.com? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I just like, you know, I asked somebody that I'd known for 20 years and been working with if I could get in and they said yes. So again, gates flung wide open for me. And that is not fair. That is not fair to thousands and thousands of other writers. Now, I will tell you this, I'm not going to stop going through those gates. I mean, I'm going <laughs> yeah. to take every opportunity afforded to me. But those very editors are working hard now. Those very publishing companies are working hard now to use things like hiring editors specifically to seek out, uh, recruit, and develop new talent from uh, marginalized voices. The rise of the sensitivity reader, I think, is a very positive, experience, uh, positive uh, development. And, you know, I just... It's an exciting time. I mean, it's right yeah. now reading short, and you're part of this. Right now, reading short science fiction and fantasy is, I think, more exciting for contemporary readers than it probably even was for contemporary readers in the 30s through the 50s in the golden age. Really? Because, you know, those guys were only reading guys that looked just like them. And it was largely guys and largely on the both sides of that um, sequence. Mm. But, you know, with, I don't like this term, but limited demographic magazines like FIA. Or when uh, individual publications do special issues like queer people destroy science fiction and that kind of thing. That brings me so much exciting reading. That brings me, that that exposes me to voices that I've never heard or seen before. And it is an exciting time to be a reader right now, I think. Now, Hmm. throwing it back to you a little bit, Oliver, you who are in some senses of the word, a gatekeeper, or you were with number zero of, yeah. of um, uh, New Edge Sword and Sorcery, but you flung that gate open, right? You you did the best you could to find marginalized voices. You recruited people. You recruited somebody who had written Queer Blades. You recruited a black writer, and you, in your in your apparatus, in your materials, interviews. Yeah, interviews I went by direct solicitation, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that was, and that's what you got to do. That's, that's the... That is now the job. That is the job of a 21st century editor of a magazine mm. is to recruit and develop. And I, and I know I've heard you say you're looking for trans forward sword and sorcery. You're looking for 
new voices and so on that maintain what I was calling the raw end of story. And the fact that you found them and the fact that there are all these diverse writers who are exper who are now interested in experimenting with the form is the reason I know you at all, yeah. right? That's the whole reason that you and I encountered each other is that we are both interested in sword and sorcery and we're both interested in broadening its rubric, or, you know, broadening its its footprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we'll see what happens going forward. But I mean, if I wasn't excited about it, I wouldn't I wouldn't have committed to the arduous task of editing a magazine. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to ask you one more very workshop specific question, if I may. Uh, and this is something else from the book. I, I'm just wondering. And it actually kind of comes off of what you know what we were discussing there in terms of who gets to speak, right? Uh, there's a warning in Craft in the Real World passed on from the author who heard it from one of their MFA professors, which is, uh, the warning goes, workshop is most helpful to whoever speaks the most, not to the person being workshopped. Do you feel there's any truth to that uh, warning? And if you agree with it, I don't, I it, don't believe in the most. When I read that, it spoke yeah. to me, but... You know, speaking as the person who is speaking most in this interview. Wow. <laughs> you were invited the, to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> workshops are, every person who has ever facilitated a workshop or participated in a workshop knows that the workshop, workshopping process is far more helpful for the critiquer than it is for the critiqued. Okay? Mm -hmm. The fact that you have to engage and intelligently discuss and be helpful about a piece that is not your own, that did not originate in your own talent and mind. If you're doing your job right, if you're engaging with the piece as the piece was meant to be received, if you're being sensitive and you're being, if you're approaching the work and the writer with an open heart, then you are engaging with work that is not your own and you are learning from it. That's where the learning happens, right? I mean, to be frank, most of the best stories that I've seen come out of Sycamore Hill in the last 15 years I didn't discern any real differences between the piece that I read and what wound up being published, right? Minor mm -hmm. stuff at best. And that that has been my experience is writing them too. I mean, I've gotten very helpful stuff and I've learned things and I've made fairly substantive changes, but not, I'm, there's no way I've done everything that everyone suggested. I mean, first off, because it's frequently contradictory, there's no way that I would do everything that a single person who was a genius suggested, right? Yeah. But that genius... And I've listed some of them that I've had the opportunity to work with, learned something from my work. They learned something from reading and thinking about my work, just as I've benefited enormously from reading and learning from not just the work of geniuses, but from the work of my students in workshops. That's the reason to go to a workshop. The reason to go to a workshop isn't to make friends, although you will make friends that last you a lifetime. It is not to make contacts, although you will make professional contacts that will be helpful throughout your career. It is not to make your stories better, except that your stories will be better because of what you learn from other stories. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah, and you know, I also like that because you basically just answered my next question. <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, you know, if someone listening to this interview, uh, you know, heard it and thought, you know, yeah, I, I think I want to try to get into a writing workshop. You know, how would you recommend they go about it, and what kind of expectations should they bring with them? And I feel like you have. <laughs> very much covered uh, the expectations. I don't know if there's anything you want to add about how someone might go about it. Well, there's, I mean, for the, for the student teacher, student instructor model ones, like the Clarions and others, there's usually an application process. Usually they start recruiting months and months in advance. We've already discussed how hard it is to go to one of the six-week ones. Now, there are a few one-week ones for student instructor ones. And, you know, I couldn't do it today. I wouldn't do it today if I was, if I was, if I had stayed. When Gwenda and I got together, I was working at a forklift repair shop and I had never finished college. Uh, I bounced off higher education hard. 
And then I got laid off and she said, go to college and get degrees. So I went to college and got degrees. But if I was still working at the forklift repair shop, but still writing, because I was writing before then, and the opportunity came to me today to apply to Clarion, even if I could get the time off, even if I couldn't, could afford it, I couldn't do it. You know, I wouldn't be able to uproot my life that way. Mm. So the first thing you have to be able to do is uproot your life, at least for a week. And that's a big ask. Mm. I believe the experiences are rewarding. Uh, I believe they're very helpful to most writers. They're not helpful to all writers. There's a cautionary note to be sounded that some people never write again after they attend a Clarion or Clarion West. And, you know, that's a sad thing. Um, some pretty harsh people, especially people who taught in the 70s, like Harlan Ellison, huh. argued that that was a good thing. That, it, you know, if you couldn't write, if you couldn't write, then you shouldn't write. Uh, now, I don't believe that. But neither do I believe, as Harlan Ellison said, that writing is a holy chore. I believe writing is an art form that is no less important than any other, but I do not believe it, that it is, you know, the gateway to heaven or whatever. I think statements like that are always just an expression of personal security. You know, for how often people don't tend to be told growing up, you know, what are you doing, wasting your time with that, you know, blah, 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 you know. Harlan Ellison's and then, and then personal later. You know. <laughs> Harlan Ellison's personal insecurities have been under-discussed in this genre for 50 years. Yeah. That was basically his whole bag. Yeah, well, bless him. But I mean, I, I've certainly heard things like that elsewhere from people who have never been published and people who've been published for decades. It just, it mm -hmm. just comes up and I always just think, okay, I get it. Like you had a, a friend or, or two who said, why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, it sounds like a good summation. So we're going to wrap this up with like a, a fun little question also from TK Rex. Uh, thank you, Taya. <laughs> Where she uh, wanted me to ask you, and I'm paraphrasing a little, but here it is. Could you please tell us about the importance of a sense of play in and out of fiction as it relates to writing? That's interesting that she should ask that. I don't remember discussing that directly in Clar Clarion. Oh. <laughs> sense of play. Well, I will tell you the first thing that we did at Clarion. Clarion this year had a rough go of it. They'd been together online and as a community for a couple of years before they finally got to go to San Diego and have their in-person workshop. They had kind of a series of fraud experiences leading up to the last week. And so what we did that very first night was we had purchased and sent to San Diego in advance these enormous bubble wands. <laughs> so the first thing we made them do is go after our introductions was go out on the patio uh, on this beautiful workshop space they have looking over the Pacific Ocean. And we blew bubbles all over the place and they floated all over the campus of UC San Diego. Play as important in fiction. All right, first off, it's a spark to creativity, right? If Conan meeting that thief in Tower of the Elephant or finding out about the jewel in the, in the tavern and going to climb the tower is not playful. That's not interesting. But the other thief he meets is kind of funny, yep. right? I mean, he's, he's, a, he's an interesting cat. He doesn't look like what you expect a master thief to look like. He doesn't talk like what you expect a master thief to look like. But he's, he's amusing, right? And that makes, that's, Part, that's one part of several parts that make that story work so well for me and make it one of many people's favorite Conan stories. And, I mean, let's take it to the movies, for example. What line do you remember better? I haven't heard that name in a long time. Or you're kind of short for a stormtrooper. <laughs> yep. A sense of play is inserted into fiction. Should, first off, serve the narrative. It frequently uh, explicates and expands characterization. 
actually that may be its most important function is a character with a sense of humor is a character who's relatable in a way that a character without one is not. And I'm, I'm not saying you can't relate to characters without a sense of humor. I have, for example, been reading a lot of Elric stories, not a funny <laughs> guy, but some of his companions are, you know, the play comes in, in characterization, play comes in in plot, play comes in in theme, play comes in in theme because it relaxes and gives access to theme. Even if you're writing something that is intensely dark, and Stephen King does this. Stephen King, especially early King, will uh, insert a funny moment. He will have a horrific, demonic monster that is kind of funny, you know, and in places. So theme, characterization, plot. What else is? What else makes up a story, Oliver? <laughs> oh no! Uh, <laughs> well, you got to have characters. <laughs> oh God. Um, okay. The sense of play. Let's let's let, let's sum it up this way. <laughs> a sense of play provides energy access and relief relief yeah it provides energy to the narrative in that it um moves things along in a way that simple action does not it provides access to characters in a way that simple morose brooding or declarative statements does not and it provides relief sometimes from what can be some pretty fraught and dangerous and disturbing events and the more dynamic rhythm, I would say, to the storytelling. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you, if you just, uh, a friend said to me when I was writing my first novel, which is very bloody horror, gory stuff, uh, you know, she said to me, if you spend all your time hitting the heavy keys on that one end of the piano, it's not a very mm. interesting song. It's a dirge. So, yeah, right. there you go. It also, it also makes the piano out of tune. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, I, I really, really like that. And I, I love that I was able to toss you a, a couple of questions there from one of your recent students. Well, Chris, I've really enjoyed this. I think we've given people a lot of interesting stuff to chew on. And uh, certainly I, I think both of us, it sounds like, would recommend Craft in the Real World uh, by Matthew mm -hmm. Sales. But if people want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go online? And do you have any, you know, like an exciting project coming over the hill that you'd like to tell people about? Uh, I have a website at ChristopherRowe.net that I promise to update any day now. <laughs> I'm on Twitter way too much and Facebook way too much. Just at ChristopherRowe is my Twitter handle. Mm -hmm. I don't talk a lot about writing and showing. I talk a lot about bicycle races and pets. You know, I hang out at the Whetstone Tavern Discord mm -hmm. uh, channel a lot. If people know about that and want to go to that. As far as projects that are coming down the hill, my current book is called Beast Prisoning Hills, which is kind of an apocalyptic meditation on Appalachian uh, depredation, but with a giant robot. <laughs> We've got an upcoming book from Tor.com called The Navigating Fox, which is set in the same world as my Tor.com short story, which is online called Knowledgeable Creatures, which is about a talking fox that leads an expedition to hell <laughs> in a world in which the Roman Empire never fell. And what else? I've got a short story coming up in Beneath Ceaseless Skies called He Stays Among the Comets, which is kind of a what happens if the epic hero decides not to go on the epic pre uh, epic quest. You know, I've always got stuff coming out. I've always got stuff coming down the pipeline. I'm getting ready to pitch another couple of Tor.com novellas, hmm. and I'm working on a revision of my thesis novel that I hope to finish by sometime next summer. And I'm writing a bunch of short, sword and sorcery short stories, which has been tremendous fun. I mean, I keep, I mean, I keep starting too many. I think I have four started uh, with, with different sets of characters in different universes. But it's just so fun to sit down and start banging one of those things out and just like see what happens next. So yeah, no, that's a, that's a that's a danger with that genre. Yeah. I find. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, awesome, Chris. Thank you ever so much for your time. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll have you back on here uh, for another topic that makes sense uh, down the line. 
That sounds great. All right, man. Bye. Bye. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to so I'm writing a novel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, coffee and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me and Christopher, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>